where we are in the creed is now we're up to this uh, another interesting point um, which we maybe tend to skip over a little bit in our mind um, we're going to be unpacking the story of Jesus' ascension or what it means to say I believe he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father I've spoken on this before so it might be familiar to some but maybe not to others there are lots of strange bits of the Christian faith lots um, and uh you know, last time I was talking, I was talking about Jesus' descent into Hades, which is another strange bit of our faith. Um, but this is another strange bit. And uh, I guess perhaps it's strange, um, you know, we notice that in the church traditions, we tend to like talk about incarnation, Jesus' birth, which we celebrate at Christmas. And we tend to talk about um, death and resurrection at Easter. And those are the two kind of focal points, I guess, for our Christian year and our sense of time. But we over we overlook uh, the, the the ascension, and I think you know perhaps it's because it has this kind of fantastical element to it. It feels a little bit strange. It feels a little bit um, almost embarrassing. We we kind of blush as sort of rational, scientific Western minds. We we blush at this idea of Jesus levitating and and floating off into the, into the clouds. It seems too weird. It seems too odd. So we bury it in a sense. We bury it in the in the Christian year. We put it on a Thursday, and we don't really talk about it. <laughs> and we don't we don't take a day off work, and we don't hand each other chocolate or, or gifts. We just we just bla- blaze over the ascension. Look at Christmas and Easter. Yet the the ascension is this unavoidable reality at the heart of the gospel. It's uh, it's in all of our creeds, not just the Apostles' Creed. It's it's right there in the story. You don't have to read that, but just to just to highlight that you know he ascended into heaven is a core part of Christian preaching. And when we when we end up avoiding it, when we end up um, skipping over it, we end up with a truncated version of the gospel story. We end up with a, a stunted version of of our message, of our Christian message. Um, Sheriff Maudling Fee. Uh, really wonderful theologian, puts it well when she says, As surely as the ascended Jesus disappeared from the disciples' sight, his ascension has disappeared from much of the church's vision and identity. Without our eyes set on our exalted king, we look to fill the void with our best efforts and self-projections. Though our language and word and creed speak of Jesus as King and Lord, ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, we're not too sure how to speak of what he's doing and why it matters. When he drops out of sight, so too do the radical implications of his ongoing life for and with us. So this morning I want to talk about how the ascension explains what Jesus is doing now and why that matters. So to begin it, let's look at the most clear example or story of the ascension in Scripture, which is in Luke's version of the Gospel. It actually appears twice. So Luke writes in the Gospel and then he writes the book of Acts and he uses the ascension to kind of sandwich the, or as a seam that connects those two stories. He repeats the ascension story twice. So in Luke, he writes, in the gospel, he writes, Then he, that's Jesus, uh, led them, the disciples, out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, 
and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. And then, yeah, we turn to the book of Acts, which is volume 2. And then starting in verse 4, it says, While Jesus was, was staying with them, the disciples, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, a very mysterious happening. <laughs> a few questions that might come to mind for us, for some of you, that maybe have uh, questions that you've asked but not felt comfortable to ask, like, why did Jesus have to leave? Like, at, at first glance, is this a good plan? Like, got Jesus here, resurrected, new creation. The disciples are like, is it time? Are you going to start the kingdom now? And then he disappears. <laughs> like, uh, why did he go? You know, it doesn't seem like a, a good plan at, at first glance. Um, you know, have you ever thought how much easier it would be to talk about Jesus if we could point people to him, if we could say, look, if you don't want to believe in Jesus, that's fine, but I can introduce him to him. He lives here. This is his address. Let's go visit him. Let's talk to him. Let me introduce you to him. Francis always asks me that, like, why can't I see Jesus? Where is he? Like, I want to see him. I want to talk to him. So I think within a child's questions, there's questions we might have as well. Why, why can't he just be here? And, and also, wouldn't it be... I guess easier for Jesus to to disavow the the people who profess to speak in His name, the people who act in the name of Jesus, and essentially do it for their own agendas. And the church has a bad reputation in many places because of people who use the name of Jesus to do all kinds of awful things. Wouldn't it be easier if Jesus could say, "I'm not with them. I'm not with that crowd." And didn't the disciples just have a really good point when they were saying, you know? Why not establish the kingdom now? Like, imagine Palestine and Israel today if Jesus had set up his permanent kingdom there. What would it look like if Jesus was ruling from there? So those are some questions. Maybe you've got more um, about these, you know, that this issue of, of Jesus' ascension. But perhaps it's more important to think about what the ascension does tell us. So... It's important when we're reading scripture to remember that, that writers like Luke are kind of operating in a Jewish frame of mind and a Jewish understanding of the world. So it's helpful for us to then think about what did, what did a writer like Luke understand of the world? What was he getting at? So for the Jewish point of view, like I talked about a few last year um, on the talk about Hades, uh, the Jewish point of view is that the, the universe has basically got three tiers. It's... it's uh, a three-tiered universe with, with heaven 
as uh, God's space and earth as the space of all living creatures and Sheol as the place of all dead creatures. And Psalm 115 expresses this. You know, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth is given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any that go down into silence. So for Jews, they have this clear kind of sense of these layers and spaces that are delineated. Um, And there was no expectation amongst Jews of Jesus' time that people would go into God's space. That was outlandish. It was blasphemous. So any any report of a human going into God's space was extraordinary um, and raised eyebrows and raised questions. It, it was almost seen as sort of an intrusion into this holy realm, this, this place where humans aren't supposed to go. And the classic case of this idea of humans intruding into God's space is the story of the Tower of Babel, where humans gather together, they put all their resources together and attempt to make themselves great by building this tower that ascends into heaven that will, they'll be able to walk up the ladder and get all the way up into God's space and thereby be gods. So kings of the ancient Near East and pretty much rulers of all time have, have always created propaganda like about themselves as being special, as being the, um, allowed to rule over them because they've ascended to greatness. Um, they're basically at the same level as the gods. And the Jews condemned this mentality in their writings. So in writings like Isaiah 14, um, the prophet criticizes the pride of the king of Babylon. He writes, How you have fallen, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So, take that. (laughs) Um, Ezekiel had sort of similar things to say about the king of Tyre. Um, and, you know, their point is clear. It's sort of preposterous for a human being to think that they can occupy the place that God occupies. And that being said, there are a few cases in the Old Testament of people being brought into God's space. So the classic is of, Mount, uh, of Moses ascending up Mount Sinai. When Moses ascends up Mount Sinai, he ascends to God's space to have conversation with God. And he receives the law and he comes back glowing. You know, he comes back. Like he has to wear a veil because he's, he's shiny. <laughs> um, another example is um, Isaiah's commission to be a prophet, to be a spokesperson for God. And Isaiah describes this vision where he's ordi- on, sort of going about his ordinary business and suddenly he, he stumbles into God's space. And this is how he puts it. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah's immediate reaction to seeing God is, Oh, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) Like, uh uh-oh, this is not good. Um, So there's a sense of, yeah, humility, I suppose, in that. And then... um, there are, yeah, within the Old Testament, there's some, so like these examples offer us some 
some temporary ascent into God's space. Um, and there's two more examples that I want to offer, just uh, where, where humans maybe ascend into God's space and maybe remain there. So the first is Enoch, um, and it's just a very, it's a one-liner really in, in Genesis, but just says, uh, Enoch walked with God and was no more. And people say, well, what happened to him? Well, here's with God. He went for a walk and they kept walking. It leaves the mystery for us to ponder. The second is Elijah, who, who you know, was walking with his disciple Elisha, and then suddenly a fiery chariot appears and, and lifts him up and sweeps him away. Now, um, it never really says where they went. It never really says what happens. We can speculate. They're left for, you know, mysteries for us to ponder. And the final picture from the Old Testament, which I think is key for us to keep in mind when we're trying to interpret what Luke's doing when he's talking about the ascension, is from the book of Daniel, which depicts in, in very apocalyptic language um, this picture, this dream, this vision of all these beasts coming out of the sea and attacking God's people. Um, one after another, beast keeps coming out of the sea and, and, and attacking God's people. And then God finally steps in and deals with it. So this is how Daniel describes it in his vision. He says... As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was sealed, and the books were opened. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here we have a picture of an ascension narrative in the Old Testament, one like a son of man, one like a human, ascending on the clouds of glory, taking up his place with the Ancient of Days, coming into this unique space, this God space, and receiving something which for an exclusively monotheistic people, the Jews, was reserved for God alone, and that is worship. The Son of Man receives worship. Only God can receive worship. So this brings us back to the ascension of Jesus. When we, when we read about the ascension of Jesus, when we just pick up Luke and read it, um, without this Old Testament backdrop, it does seem like a strange story. It seems odd. Um, we focus on the image of someone levitating. We focus on the mechanics of it, I guess. We think about the where questions rather than the who questions. Because the language of ascension is really not so much about location, it's about exaltation, it's about coronation, it's about becoming royal. And all of a sudden, when we start to read Luke that way, the pieces start falling into place, this kingdom of God and this king and this son of man. And then we think about the other gospels, so you might think, well, why do we base all this stuff on one gospel, what about the others? Well, Matthew's gospel, how does it end when we think about it, Jesus Jesus, it's the final scene is Jesus up on a mountain telling all of his followers that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Thus quoting directly from Daniel 7. 
and this ascension narrative. And so too with Mark's gospel where when Jesus is being cross-examined before the crucifixion, the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, to which Jesus responds, again, straight out of Daniel, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. So ascension is in the gospels, it's just not, we just don't always see it. It's not a quirky ending to the Gospel of Luke. It's the high point of our Gospel story. It's, uh, it's the triumph of Jesus. Jesus, God incarnate, has triumphed over sin and death. He's triumphed over the powers. The beast couldn't claim him, and he was raised from death and resurrected as the first taste of God's new creation, glorified and exalted to the right hand of the Father. So the practical... Yeah, the practical day-to-day implications of the ascension are numerous. Like we've, we've given a bit of an Old Testament view. But we still have to ask that question, you know, what is Jesus doing right now? And it, it might seem like a strange question to ask. Um, but I think it's because we've become a little bit preoccupied with thinking about what Jesus did back then. And maybe then giving some thought to what will Jesus do in the future? But not a lot of thought to what is he doing right now as we, us who are here in this room, are gathered. Jesus is alive. He's doing things. What is he doing? Where is he? We're probably more used to the what would Jesus do, yeah, the, the, the phenomenon that, that swept through the 90s. Um, but we really ought to ask, what is he doing? Because, um, yeah, we... we or, yeah, anyway, speaking for myself, I think this question um, is confronting. Uh, it's, it's much less confronting for me to relegate Jesus to the past or to the future. In a sense, in the past, he's static and the future is unknown. But the present Jesus is speaking and the present Jesus is with us and the present Jesus is alive and seeing us. So he's not, he's not floating around either. He's not the sort of ethereal spirit that floats around the room. Jesus is embodied. He's not Casper the friendly ghost. He's not an imaginary friend. When he was resurrected on Easter Sunday, he emerged from the tomb with a human body. Ah, it's a blank slide. He was recognizable to his friends. They saw him. They, they recognized him. He wasn't some kind of ghost. Um, he ate with them. He walked with them. He breathed on them. They touched him and held him, and when he ascended, he didn't abandon his body. He didn't sort of peel it off on his way up into the clouds. He didn't throw it away like a mandarin skin. But he he keeps his body. It's with him now. So right now, that means Jesus has eyes like like these. He has eyebrows like like these. He has fingers. He has fingernails. He He has a belly button. He has toes. They look unique. They're Jesus' toes. They're not an archetype of toe. It's got nipples. <laughs> Does it make you feel uncomfortable to think about Jesus' body like that? The particularity of it? I think for a lot of us, it does make us feel uncomfortable. The body makes us feel uncomfortable. The idea of God, you know, the creator God having a body like ours. It might seem a little crass, a little gross, but I think 
if that is the case, it's because we've bought into a dualistic way of thinking. We've bought into this idea that spirit is pure and clean and the divine is pure and clean and the body and matter and material is evil, somehow corrupt, somehow bad. That's not a Jewish idea. It's just somehow Plato has gotten to our heads whether we've read him or not. The incarnation affirms that, that God who created all things, has united himself with all things, his creation. He didn't, become, he didn't just become human in a sense. He became everything that human is made out of. He became carbon and oxygen and calcium. He became all of it. So he is, he's become incarnate. He's become part of creation. And that's so, it's not just good news for us. It's good news for everything. It's good news for all creation. The resurrection and ascension affirm that Jesus remains fully God and fully human, not only in his body, but in his mind and in his will and his emotions. He wasn't divinity wearing humanity like a glove. He was and remains and always will be to the end. You know, he won't, he'll never stop being human, fully human and fully God. And that might seem, again, strange. Like, we might think, surely he wants to shake his humanity off at some point. Like, when it all comes to the end, he'll finally, like, bust out of his humanity. No, he's embraced his humanity. And that says something about our humanity, you know. He brings humanity into the presence of the Father, into the Godhead, where it's been affirmed with God's yes and amen. So our humanity is affirmed by God as well. I think this is part of what we talk about when we talk about good news. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's, it's now. It's our bodies. It's our planet. This is not just to be trendy. This is, this is gospel. God has placed Jesus at the helm of the universe, which means we have a representative, someone like us, someone who's felt the things we feel, someone who's tasted the things we've tasted. He's put Jesus at the helm of the universe. Gregory of Nazianzus, speaking of Jesus' incarnation, said, that which is not assumed cannot be healed. Meaning that if there was something Jesus didn't know, didn't feel, didn't experience, which is common to all of us as humans, then that part of Jesus would remain unhealed and unredeemed. But the cross, the crucifixion, shows that there's no part of our humanity in which Jesus was not willing to participate and heal. All, he, he participates with us all the way through to death and beyond death. And that's what makes him the great high priest, which Hebrews talks about. Because a priest is one who represents us to God. He represents us to the Father and eliminates the gap between us and God. So we can say with confidence right now that Jesus is representing each one of us to the Father. The ascension also shapes our our proclamation of, of the gospel and that it affirms the universal lordship of Jesus. Jesus isn't just lord of one place, he's lord of all. And in a, in a very real sense, um, going back to that thought about why couldn't he have just set up his kingdom in Israel, why did he have to go? In a sense, Jesus was quite limited um, prior to the ascension and being only in one place at, at, at one time. He, he came as Israel's Messiah, that was his mission. Not, not New Zealand's Messiah, but he came as Israel's Messiah to fulfill the promises and covenants of the Old Testament. But he was raised, when he was raised and exalted, he became Lord of all, Lord of all creation, of all peoples. 
So the ascension is this moment when we celebrate that there's no place, there's no nation, there's no culture, there's no time where Jesus doesn't say, I am Lord over this. We all live under his reign. So, yeah, there's, there's much that could be said about the connection between, again, like Jesus' ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to do a whole Sunday on talking about the Holy Spirit, but um, I do want to offer one more thought about how the ascension shapes our understanding of what Jesus is doing right now and, and why that matters for us. So throughout um, his letters, Paul emphasizes the idea of the Christian life being hidden in Christ. This is a language that he uses a lot, in Christ. So it's no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And this is a, a complex idea, this in Christ idea. Um, it can lead to misconceptions about um, the nature of Jesus, again, in his embodied life. When we talk about being in Christ, um, we again try to think about, we tend to think location, we tend to think matter and material. We talk about accepting Jesus into our heart, and it's like, how does he get in there? How does he fit in there? <laughs> um, we, we, um, yeah, we can, when we fall into this kind of language, it can lead us into thinking of Jesus as a spirit, as a kind of ethereal being, um, which he's not. Um, so yeah, he's not a guiding force or feeling, he's a person. So when we, when we acknowledge that he's a person, we have to ask, what does it mean to participate in Christ? This is a person. And when Paul thinks about this, he talks about being in Christ. What he means is that um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're united with Christ in his death, resurrection, and exaltation. When we experience the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit um, takes up residence in us, when the Holy Spirit empowers us and fills us, we taste uh, a, a, a first taste of, of this life with Christ. We experience life in Christ and with Christ. Like a down payment or a seal of the promise of this future age. So we taste it now in a little bit. We have a little seal, a little down payment of this future life. Um, and we, ex we kind of wait in eager expectation for when this will become all in all, when, when the future will become now. However, I think we, we tend to teeter away, I certainly do, tend to teeter away from hope, tend to teeter away from thinking about the future and anticipating more of, the, more of God, the anticipating deeper union with God. Um, we tend to think of this, the future age as this thing that's really far away. It's, it's a million miles away, so I'm kind of having to work my life out on my own because I know Jesus is going to come back one day, but in the meantime, it's all up to me to figure this thing out. So we end up sort of taking on responsibility for navigating our life according to the age, the rules of this age. Um, I think Paul, Paul counters this tendency because he must have seen it in the people around him too. He, see, he writes in the letter to the Ephesians, um, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. So notice that Paul's using present tense language there. He's saying, we are seated with him. Um, we are, yeah, we are raised up with him. Not we will be, but we are. So there's a, a present tense experience of being ascended with Jesus right now. And again, writing to the Colossians, he writes, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart 
on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the ascension, again, is an invitation to question where is our hope and, and what is our experience. So um, without being triumphalistic, we, we can experience the ascension right now while also, also acknowledging that we're awaiting his return. We can say with full conviction that in Christ, we have overcome the world. In Christ, we have overcome sin, whilst also acknowledging that you know, um, we wait for his return. I believe this is why the creeds connect Jesus' ascension with his return. It says, he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will return. Or as the angel said to the disciples who are staring up at the clouds, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, to sum up, um, lots of thoughts this morning, lots of different thoughts here, but um, what does it all mean for us right now, I guess, as we're sitting here? These are my takeaways. Jesus is reigning as Lord of all creation. And that, I think, ought to fundamentally change our outlook on all things, on politics, on economics, on ecology, on everything. Jesus is Lord now, and he's Lord over all powers, all prime ministers, all kings, all presidents. Jesus is Lord. And we experience his lordship now. We are subjects of him. And Jesus right now at this moment is interceding for us. He's not pleading before an angry God not to smite us. He's interceding in that he's bringing us to the Father. And he's saying, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. They're with me. They're like me. They're one of me. So he brings us into the, the Father's love. Thirdly, Jesus remains, like I've said, fully human and will return fully human. Therefore, our bodies do matter. Our our planet matters to him, and we can begin this process of caring for our bodies. We can begin this process of ushering in new creation in practical ways, like learning to be embodied people. And fourthly, Jesus is present to us as a people right now by the power of the Spirit. He's not floating in like a ghost. He's present with the Father, but he's not far away. He sees us. He's, he's with us. Where each of us experience him right now because he is watching us. He's, he's among us. He's, by the power of the Spirit, he's uniting us as a people. We're kind of being brought in to Jesus and he's bringing us into the Father. And Jesus will return one day. And when he does, he will return and see us face to face. One day we will look into his face and it will be a human face like ours. Won't that be a wonderful thing? 